Welcome to Women of Marvel. I'm Ellie Pyle. I'm Judy Stevens. And I'm Angelique Rocher. So today, surprise, surprise, we're talking about witches. We had so much fun last season talking about witches that we thought we would do some more of that. Specifically, though, today, we are talking about the Scarlet Witch. She is so powerful, she garners her own episode. And uh, she first appeared in the comics in 1963 in Uncanny X-Men with her twin brother, Quicksilver. Born Wanda Maximoff in Wondagore Mountain in Eastern Europe, her family history is a little cloudy, kind of complicated... But what is clear is that she was born with magical powers. And around the time that we meet her in the comics, magic and witchcraft had become a mainstay in pop culture. And to find out more about how Wanda and her magic evolved, I spoke with historian Beth Pollard, friend of this podcast and distinguished professor at San Diego State University, where she teaches courses in Roman history, world history, and witchcraft witchcraft studies. Beth Pollard, welcome back to Women of Marvel. I'm so glad that you're back to talk to me about witches some more. Thank you so much, Ellie. I am so glad to be back talking about witches. Uh, this is uh, obviously something I care a lot about, and I so enjoyed our last conversation. Me too. So our theme for this season of Women of Marvel is how it started, how it's going. And what we're here to talk about is how Wanda evolved over time. So let's talk about how she started. So talk to me a little bit about how Scarlet Witch kind of grew out of what we saw of the idea of witches in the 50s and 60s. Sure thing. I think one of the biggest differences between how it started and how it's going is that the earliest Scarlet Witch was very much a part of other storylines. She seems to be this extra character in X-Men. She's a bad guy in the X-Men. Avengers, uh, she joins the team. Uh, she's tangentially related to the Fantastic Four. Now, one of the, the great things about uh, the modern day, the how it's going, right, is you've got all the many comic manifestations, you've got the full Marvel Cinematic Universe, you've got Wanda and the Avengers uh, movies, uh, but at least there's a concerted effort by Marvel to keep a coherent Scarlet Witch. Uh, another part of the how it started, which I'd love to tell you about, is this context of witches in comics in the 1950s. I've looked a lot at witches in horror comics from mm -hmm. the 1950s and 1960s. And in those comics, especially in the 1950s, pre-Comics Code Authority, the witches are these seductive betrayers. They're poisoners of their husbands. They deceive men. And while they might look occasionally pretty and, you know, really put together in that, you know, textbook 1950s sort of housewife way, that too is a deception uh, because underneath she's haggard, she's old, she's decrepit, she's always got the wart on her nose. They gather around cauldrons, they have wicked beasties casting spells, they're demon worshippers, they possess good young women. So these stories of witches in comics in the 1950s, they're very typical, you know, misogynistic, ugly power-grabbing woman stories. And so when you get Scarlet Witch, right, in the 1960s, the early 1960s, she's something new. You know, she's something different. There isn't an ugly version of her. You know, mm -hmm. there is the canonical, you know, beautiful. I mean, we might we might quibble with her fashion sense, but, you know, the red leotard. <laughs> Right. I, yeah, actually, actually, I'm not going to quibble. I, I will say that when I started reading comics, which I was around 11, 12, I remember tracing images of Wanda. I loved that costume as a kid. So I don't know what that says about my taste, but I think, you know, in the context it was in, it was delightful. It's so funny. You know, I'm wondering if there's pictures of you as a little Ellie dressed as the Scarlet Witch somewhere. <laughs> yeah, with the, I, with... There aren't. There aren't, but uh, I will say that my mother knows who the Scarlet Witch is because she called me at one point and was like, I found this red coat and I think you need it because it's like the Scarlet Witch. That's fantastic. So, well, now all you anyway. need is a red leotard. You need a red there leotard. You, you need thigh high 
red mm-hmm. boots. Mm-hmm. You need that cape that your uh, yeah. that your mom mentioned, yeah, and, and don't forget the pink. You need the pink stockings. Yes, with and, the red. Yeah, mm-hmm. and the wimple. Uh, yep. Uh, and there you are. Then you're there you you're go. dressed that way. There you go. Uh, so when we first see Scarlet Witch, it's um, in uh, the X Men storyline. 1964, the likes of Jack Kirby and Chick Stone. We see her in many different instances, but one instance is uh, Wanda being saved from this angry group of villagers uh, whose village she has accidentally burned. And this is her first appearance in comics. And she then ends up spending time with the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. You know, you were mentioning the X-Men storyline. She has multiple engagements against the X-Men through this, her role in this Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. So when we first meet her, sure, she's the bad side, right? But she's there not necessarily through her own doing. And she eventually gets her way out of it. But yeah, when we first meet her, that's how we meet her. Yeah, this, this young woman who has accidentally burned down a village. Talk to me a little bit about Hex powers and what that version of Wanda's powers were like. Wild and uncontrolled. I, when we first get to know Wanda, she needs help learning how to control her powers. She's not very good at keeping her powers under wraps or focused in any sort of way. Uh, And in fact, it it takes about, I think it's about 10 years in the comics before it becomes very clear that Wanda needs help. She needs someone to train her powers, control her powers. And we get that in the Avengers comics in 1974 uh, in a comic called Bewitched, Bothered, and Dead. So it opens with this splash page that has a bolt of lightning cracking right down the center of the page. And where does this lance of lightning death crack? Right in between Scarlet Witch and Agatha Harkness. And this is the storyline where Scarlet Witch first begins to train with Agatha Harkness. We see Agatha, she's got her hands up. She's fluidly doing gestures and spells in this moment. And I I love this one description. She thrusts her laced trimmed hands wide in the sky as if clutching the universe. I mean, so this is no mere witch right here. Mm -hmm. After this attack quells, Agatha points out that this was actually a magical attack on herself, not anybody else. It wasn't against Thor. It wasn't against Iron Man or the Fantastic Four or Vision, all of whom are present in this moment. Uh, But this is the neat part where she says, you know what? I'm done raising Franklin Richards, the child of Sue and Reed. She says, I'm done raising him up. He needs to go back to his mother's care because right at this moment, she realizes she needs to tutor Scarlet Witch, tutor Mm -hmm. Wanda Maximoff in her magical powers. And then at some point she loses her powers and she has to study grimoires and turn to other tools, right? Yes. And you know... (laughs) You know, one of my favorite things about uh, these uh, witches and these grimoires is the Darkhold, uh, mm-hmm. which has a very special connection to Wanda. So one of the characters who is important in the evolving backstory, origin story of Wanda is a character named Kathan. Kathan is in Kathanic powers, underworldly powers. And it's that Kathan who is the creator of the Darkhold, this incredibly powerful magical text. And this this Darkhold is is created in conjunction with a cave and a creepy powerful location called Mount Wundagore, mm-hmm. uh, which is a great name for something. Uh, now that mountain, which is the the place where the Darkhold was created, is where in one version of the story, Wanda and her brother were born. So Wanda in the comics has this really neat connection to this powerful magical spot, Mount Wundagore, that is essential to the most powerful grimoire in the Marvel Universe, namely the Darkhold, and to Wanda's origin story. Uh, in another backstory, uh, Wondagore is the place where Wanda and her brother are experimented on uh, mm-hmm. after being taken away from their mother as as children. Uh, so in terms of you know, Wanda needing to study grimoires and learn how to control her magic or get her magic back. Uh, it's, it's really striking that she is tied to the most important grimoire, uh, the Darkhold. 
what I love hearing emerge in this is the idea that Wanda represents a lot of different kinds of witches and ways that witches get their powers at different stages of her evolution that you know you start out with you know her having just been born with this power she doesn't understand you then get to go through okay but also magic can be taught through mentorship that you know this relationship she has with Agatha then we have okay just the pure study of this is working through grimoires and, you know, you mentioned that there's also the possibility that this magic was created in her, which is also a thing that we have seen by an outside force or an artifact, perhaps one might say. And we then kind of come around to this idea of that Wanda herself is this being that kind of has these reality altering powers, not just the small magics that we have perhaps seen in these hexes, but we come all the way around to the ability to actually create another reality, which we, of course, get with House of M. So talk to me a little bit about that era of Wanda. Let's talk about the No More Mutants era of Wanda. You know, that that aspect of Wanda is so fascinating. And there's that moment in uh, in that storyline where she has been mistreated. uh, She's angry at Magneto and there's that great panel where you see the words just out of her lips, no more mm-hmm. mutants. And mm-hmm. just with those words, she wipes out the gene, the power of 90% of the mutant population. But it's a moment where it becomes clear that Wanda's powers don't just exist in one realm, but they exist across multiple realms. Mm-hmm. And that she can change the fabric of multiple realities in ways that yeah, even somebody like Dr. Stephen Strange can't fix, right? This is when you begin to realize just how terrifying, as if you hadn't realized it already, but just how terrifying she is. So let's look at the relationship between magic and mental illness. How does all that power and all that trouble coexist? In terms of the mental health question, uh, we've been talking about uh the the re- the most recent Scarlet Witch uh, series of books, I uh, and uh, one of the interesting things is Scarlet Witch knows that she is troubled, I uh, and in volume two of the recent Scarlet Witch uh, series, we see her going to see a psychiatrist. Uh, she has uh, an ongoing relationship with uh, with a Dr. Grand, and it's in talking to him that we see her working through who she is, what her past is, you know, the, the relationship between uh, herself and, and we haven't talked about it, this, this, this high evolutionary, this person who may well have experimented on her and triggered her magic in one version of the story. So we see her seeking out help for her mental health and struggling with who she is and where she's come from. Uh, the one thing I don't like about this aspect of the story, she's vulnerable. Uh, she's sharing her deepest, darkest um, concerns about herself and her identity. And it turns out that the psychiatrist is a fraud who is using her for her powers in order to uh, to get what he wants. But it's odd because he's, regardless of the fact that the psychiatrist is a fraud, she has still benefited from it in terms of exploring her inner world, her inner psyche, the things that have troubled her uh, in terms of understanding who she is. Uh, so, and then I love the fact that the very next part we see that she's turned to yoga because she's going to take care of her mental health that way. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but but she's a Scarlet, which is a great example of a woman who has dealt with a lot. I mean, mm-hmm. that's, that's the understatement of the year, right? Yeah. And having the ability to change reality puts a lot on your mind. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And and she does it with style. So in 2016, in the comics, Scarlet Witch got her own solo series. Because this is a podcast, you can't see that she's holding up all the beautiful David Aha covers. And this actually gives us another piece of how witches sometimes get their powers, which is that they can be hereditary. So talk to me a little bit about this storyline where Wanda goes and discovers her lineage and legacy. 
Oh my goodness. I have to say this. I, I just reread this for our conversation, a guilty pleasure. And I strongly recommend if, if your listeners haven't read Witch's Road, World of Witchcraft, The Final Hex, please rush out, get it now uh, and read it immediately. I, you know, I was mentioning uh, earlier when we were talking this idea that the more modern Wanda is her, her storyline is starting to come together and begin to make more sense. And what I appreciate about this set of books is that it dips into a lot of that multiverse of who Wanda is, all of the different stories of who she has been, and begins to make sense of them. When you flip through it, I, I love the very first you know page pulls from Exodus, thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. And we see her just waking up just getting through her life, struggling with what it is to be who she is. And something interesting in these opening pages, she is accompanied by the witch of Agatha Harkness. And so as Wanda works through this storyline, she's interacting with some of the most famous witches of, of legend. We see her run into Hecate on, on a Greek island. We see her run into a number of other witches and warlocks. But I think the most impressive part is the end when all of these disparate stories are brought together with Agatha walking along what the comic calls the witch's road. And it taps into this idea of the, the classic, the maiden, the mother, the crone. We have Scarlet Witch learning who her mother is, finding herself in that knowledge coming to grips with who Agatha is in her life. What's your favorite version of Wanda Maximoff? Oh my God, that's so hard. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I have to say my favorite version is not the earliest version. She's interesting in that, you know, she's a breath of fresh air in how witches are depicted in comics, but she's always distracted by, you know, relationships. And it's it's frustrating because she doesn't seem to come into her own. I think my favorite Wanda is the one that's unpacked in the in the most recent uh, comic series by Robinson, Del Rey, Rudy, Dylan, uh, Visions, Polito, uh, you know, and a host of other authors, artists, mm -hmm. creators. And that one is my favorite book version of Wanda because it brings together so many of the storylines and helps to make sense of who she is. Well, what would you hope to see next for Scarlet Witch? But it's specifically in the comics. Is there a yes. version of her that you haven't seen from us yet that you would like to? I think I would love to see more of the Lady Liberators. I don't know if you know much about the Lady... Do you know the Lady Liberators? I, I do know the Lady Liberators. Okay, so uh, this is one of the many teams on which Scarlet Witch has collaborated. The Lady Liberators show up in uh, December 1970, so they're as old as I am. And in a version uh, of the comic called Come On In, The Revolution's Fine. And in this particular comic, uh, Enchantress in the form of Valkyrie convinces Scarlet Witch, Black Widow, and Medusa to help her battle male oppression. You know, you got to go after the patriarchy. Uh, and interestingly enough, this battle against the patriarchy then turns into a battle between Scarlet Witch and Enchantress Revealed. You know, it becomes clear that Valkyrie is not Valkyrie, but is actually Enchantress. Uh, and this makes me a little grumpy, right? Because this mm -hmm. idea of women battling the patriarchy turns into women fighting each other but mm -hmm. i would love to see the comics revisit that the idea that women who fight the patriarchy should not turn on one another and fight each other but instead mm -hmm. should continue to fight the patriarchy and and use their magic to do so uh, and so i would love to see a re-envisioning of the lady liberators i love it Beth, thank you so much. I hope that you will come back and talk to us at Women of Marvel another time. But thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you so much, Ellie. It's been fabulous. You know, I really loved hearing about the role magic plays in all aspects of Wanda's life. Like, there's literally nothing that magic doesn't touch. But I got to say, I was a little surprised to hear about everything she's had to deal with. It's just ever evolving, but like really complicated history she has. But it does seem like magic is the cause and the cure for so much of the tragedy in her life. 
you could say that it's made her into a really strong character and stronger by each different instance. And what makes a strong character interesting is what puts limits and challenges on their enormous power and enormous resilience. So to that end, I had a wonderful conversation to get to know a little bit more about the challenges that Wanda has faced with one of our assistant editors here at Marvel, Caitlin Lindvet. And we talked about her background in the mental health field, how Scarlet Witch deals with trauma, and why Wanda is her favorite character. Caitlin, hello. Welcome to Women of Marvel. Hi, it's awesome to be here. Hello. Welcome back, actually. We got to have a brief chat with you uh, back in the fall, during which uh, I recall you mentioned that you are a big fan of the Scarlet Witch. Yes, yes, I am. So before we talk about Wanda, uh, why don't you talk to me a little bit about you and how did you start out with comics? How did you come to end up here at Marvel? Sure. So that's sort of a winding path. Uh, Comics were always around. My dad is super into them. And I, growing up, was super into manga and, uh, among other things, the X-Men TV show. (laughs) But growing up, my grandmother knew that my dad and I were super into these things. And our local library had a shelf dedicated to selling the books that they had that didn't necessarily get borrowed all that frequently. And in my neighborhood, that was always the manga and the comics. So every couple of months, she'd come over with a stack of like five or ten cent a copy volumes that she had bought and just hand them to us and be like hey i know you like these things so keep what you want leave what you don't and you know just have fun with it so i got exposed to a lot of different things through that never in the correct order (laughs) it was always like volume five of this and issue three of that but it was super fun then how that ended up leading to a job at marvel during COVID, I got furloughed and I was unemployed for a while and I was doing the whole reevaluation of what my life had been so far, (laughs) Um, as I think a bunch of us were doing. And I had a friend who runs their own independent press and they were looking for some editing help and uh, took me on and I really enjoyed the work. And then I saw an ad for an assistant editor position at Marvel Comics on the internet, and it was full time. My friend was like, absolutely, go for it. Like, And so I interviewed, and they seemed to like me, and here I am. There you go. And you have some background in the mental health field as well, right? Yeah, yeah. That was the uh, the alternate path, as it were. I went to college for development anthropology, which is a huge field that covers a lot of things, but my specific program looked a lot at different systems theories and diaspora and how diaspora and systems impact collective identity development and trauma. And that helped me right out of college get a job in youth mental health. I worked in a couple of residential facilities, an inpatient facility, and I loved the work. The kids are absolutely great, but It's one of those fields where you have to be able to separate your emotions from the work that you're doing. And I really struggled with that. You can't you can't go into it wanting to save everybody. And I did. And that took a big toll on me. And I kept coming back to the question of how we could help the people, adults and kids alike who current care systems miss. And as I kept thinking about this, I kept coming back to stories and the accessibility of stories. And that train of thought is what led me down the path that I'm on now. All right, so let's talk about Wanda. How did you first encounter her and how did she become your favorite character? Really, what brought me back to Wanda in a this is definitely my favorite character way was going through the work I did with the kids. Wanda's a really great example of how to persevere through a bunch of stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Right? Yeah. She's been through a lot. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah, and she's also a really good starting point for a bunch of conversations about how to portray and interact with all of that Mm -hmm. stuff that she's been through, right? So she and Bruce Banner was another one because he was super big in the movies at the time. So taking the characters that all the kids knew from the movies and then Wanda still hadn't really come into her own there at that point yet so I got to point to the comics and the earlier stuff with her and be like look at all this other stuff she does there's a whole person in there and really talking through a lot of the stuff that she had been through as more of a summarizing experience rather than an in-the-moment fan experience helped me assimilate her story Mm -hmm. and come around to the stuff I hadn't liked as much growing up versus what I did and why the stuff I hadn't necessarily liked as much was still important. And once I had done all of that, I came around and I love a bunch of Marvel characters, but she was really just like, yeah, that's my girl. (laughs) So let's talk about the stuff you don't like. Tell me what your least favorite Wanda story is. So I, I don't know that it's least favorite for actual plot. I struggle with the fact that House of M is what she's best known for okay. on a casual level. Uh-huh. I was 10 when that came out. And it was really easy to point to her sort of the same way that was happening with Jean Grey and the X-Men films a couple years earlier, where it's very easy to point to her and say she's the overpowered crazy character, uh-huh. which wasn't at all what I think that comic story was trying to say but it was easy to extrapolate without any background information and I think it's something that tends to happen to women both in real life and in fiction and then so that was definitely one of those things when I was older and actually an adult and going through and rehashing these storylines. Marvel's great at complex characters and I just I wish that more of the complexity around that story had been discussed at the time, Mm -hmm. more colloquially. But are you finding that there is more discussion of that nuance now? Yeah, I am. And I honestly, I think mental health overall, I think is being discussed more openly and with more nuance now, which is definitely helping. I do want to talk more about what it is that allows Wanda to move forward and kind of what some Mm -hmm. of those tools you've seen her develop are. But for people who are not as well versed in these stories as you are, let's talk a little bit about what Wanda's trauma is and how we see that manifest in earlier stories. Sure. Earlier, it was a really persistent manifestation of needing to build her own family, right? Mm -hmm. So her background is she and her brother Quicksilver were orphaned really, really young, and they spent a long time not knowing why or for sure who their birth parents actually were. Eventually, we come to learn that the High Evolutionary had kidnapped them and experimented on them, which is a whole other bag of trauma (laughs) that we'll get to. But They spent a while growing up understanding that Magneto was at least an adoptive parent, if not their actual biological parent. And this question went back and forth for years in the story. And Wanda did two things. She clung to her relationship with Pietro and spent a lot of time making decisions with Pietro and everything had to happen together um, or within the circumstances of the Avengers sort of group decision making. So she struggled to find her own place outside of what family she already had. Mm -hmm. And this wasn't necessarily a bad place for her to start. You get a few good conversations between her and Quicksilver, her and Vision, her and the team throughout the 70s and 80s about what being a woman means to her and being a woman on a male-dominated team means to her and what being a wife and a mother and a family-oriented person is. One of the first stories that popped out to me was one of the Avengers issues where uh, she and Vision are already married by this point, or already together at this point, and they're talking about how Vision can't give her kids. Mm-hmm. And the winding conversation they have throughout this issue where she eventually comes to terms With the fact that for her, her love of vision and her love of their relationship is something she's willing to prioritize. That's a compromise she's willing to make. And she does start to build out her nuance in the understanding of family a little bit. 
she does have kids. Billy and Tommy come to be. They have no idea how this has happened. It turns out what they turn out to be is really complicated. But yeah. initially they think... Magic. That, yeah, magic, maybe Mephisto, probably not, it's, just lost souls. It's, it's never Mephisto. It's never Mephisto. <laughs> it's never Mephisto, but it's fun. Yeah, and so then she loses the kids. And I think we can all relate to the idea of finally getting everything you ever wanted and then losing it. Absolutely. Because she loses the kids and then vision in rapid succession. Which strains her relationship with her Avengers family. Mm-hmm. Her relationship with Magneto on and off is strained throughout the entirety of Wanda's existence in comics. Mm-hmm. Like there are, she has a bunch of things, a bunch of terrible, terrible traumatic things happen to her at once. And she handles it about as well as you'd expect anyone whose entire identity relies on one sole thing that yep. has been taken away from them. Which is not well, right? right? She doesn't handle it well at all. So then House of M, we either have known or, or are just learning that these memories of all of her traumatic loss have been repressed, I think, by Agatha or by someone with those abilities to do it. And that repression gets meddled with. Mm-hmm. So then she starts to remember. And because they were repressed, she didn't have the ability to process them in real time. So all of that pain and all of that grief hits her like a train mm-hmm. at a point in her life when she's otherwise doing well and she doesn't have the tools to cope with it. And then no more mutants happens. Right. <laughs> Listening to you describe it, you can absolutely hear, you know, kind of the a very relatable arc in that of Mm -hmm. kind of how people discover their own identities. And what do you think having had the majority of our society just go through something of a crisis moment? And in fact, you talked about your own kind of, you know, choosing a different path in the midst of, you know, kind of this, Mm -hmm. this recent crisis. What do you think that people in general can kind of take from Wanda's journey during this time in particular? I think the biggest one is you're allowed to choose you. Mm -hmm. I think by virtue of being human, right, we exist a lot in our perceptions of how other people perceive us and valuing your own perception of yourself enough to cater to it I think is a huge lesson that she brings forward I think acknowledging mistakes and that you're allowed to make them Mm -hmm. is another one I also think just as a witch character right there's the general beat of just being different even at her lowest Wanda doesn't cave to a different understanding of what it means to be a woman right she always stands very strong in the idea that not just womanhood but personhood in general is a very diverse concept she married the vision. Yeah, I was just thinking exactly that. Yeah, she she, she does so, have a very nuanced understanding of personhood. Yeah. And, and I think you are right to link that back to something fundamental about, you know, the idea of witches that, you know, mm-hmm. there there is this fundamental element of, as you said, marching to the beat of their own drum, of the heresy of it all in its broadest term (laughs) of kind of going your own way with things. And that some of that also leads to, in the moments where she is able to claim and really get a handle on her power, she Mm -hmm. does have the tools that she needs to navigate the nuance of the mistakes that she has made and the fact that Mm -hmm. she is still accountable for them. Yeah, exactly. Where would you like to see Wanda's journey take her from here? Ooh. My question is always how long do we hold a character accountable, right? And I'm interested to see what the answer to that question is. I think there's a good argument to be made either way, right? There are certainly storylines beyond House of M that Trial of Magneto and Darkhold didn't deal with, Mm -hmm. where she was still making mistakes and still stumbling, right? But I also think... There's something to be said for acknowledging that a bunch of Marvel characters make mistakes. And is there a conversation around who we hold accountable for a really long time versus who we don't? Yep. And I think in-universe those conversations happen, and I think they happen really well. 
Caitlin, I loved this chat with you. Thank you so much for joining me and sharing your perspective on Wanda. Please come back anytime. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Okay, that was dope. Seriously, like, there's nothing better. And I think y'all can agree, like, hearing people get really excited about a character. I mean, everybody's got their own Monica Rambeau, and her Monica Rambeau is Scarlet Witch. The one thing, I mean, there's many things I love about comics, but it's just how the purpose and meaning of a character can really change and evolve over time for us. Right. So, like, the characters we read as children can have so much more depth, i.e., my love of Howard the Duck. And then, you know, you go back and you're like, oh, I relate to you much differently as an adult, which is pretty incredible. Yeah, really good stories hold up in that way where we process them on different levels as children versus then kind of being able to come back to them with a greater understanding as an adult. And I really loved what Caitlin had to say about her experiences reading Scarlet Witch and not fully understanding or caring for what a story was about, but then coming back to it later and being able to see it with a different perspective. But another way that characters change over time, particularly in comics, is the way they are drawn. And Scarlet Witch is no exception. From a vibrant red suit and hot pink tights to a more sophisticated Scarlet ensemble, I got a chance to chat with Eisner Award winning artist Jordi Belair about what it's like to bring the color into Scarlet Witch's life. Literally. Hello, Jordi Belair. Welcome to Women of Marvel. Hi, Ellie. Thank you for having me. I'm so psyched to be here. Old friend from New York. What's up? Yeah, I'm excited to have you here. We haven't gotten to chat in a long time. Years. Yeah. <laughs> so let's start out by talking about your background a little bit. Uh, you graduated from a prestigious art school. What made you want to work in comics? Were you always a fan? Oh, yeah. I've loved comics since I was a kid. I started out by being um, very interested in what my dad had in his cupboard. He had all like the Spawn comics and he also had the Max, which I was very transfixed by those covers. I just used to stare at those for ages when I was like about eight or seven. And then, uh, yeah, as I grew up, I went to school, always wanted to draw in comics, but I did not feel good enough because it turns out that job's very hard to draw comics. It's like incredibly taxing to draw 22 amazing pages every four weeks. And um, yeah, I just kind of fell into coloring and given my illustration background, a lot of my mates like Tom Fowler, who I worked with on the Hulk. Actually, Ellie, I think you might have worked with me on the Hulk. Maybe the Hulk season I, one. I was working with you on Doctor Strange season one at the exact yes. same time. Same timesies. That you yes. were working on Hulk. Yeah. Yeah, I just kind of fell into it. And it was just a really interesting place to be in a way that I feel like I got to have really frank conversations with artists about what we thought was good art. And then I think that made me a fast learning colorist, I guess, if that makes sense. Well, and you have a very distinctive color style. Why don't you give us some good art terms? Well, I guess we might call it restrained. It's a restrained look when it looks very unrendered. Though I do like to also paint, which is maybe where it looks a little more rendered. But I'm not as good as somebody like um, Laura Martin, the classic, the OG, the legend, you know, who's very good about getting in there and really making things look shiny and real. I've tried. I do not have the capacity. I do not know why my brain does not work like that. So I feel like I'm really into like Matt Hollingsworth, who of course colored mm -hmm. Hawkeye and Dave Stewart, who's a legend who has colored Hellboy and lots of other new classics at Marvel. That's more painterly, more soft. I think a lot of us Americans would call it a European look. And then mm -hmm. when I lived in Ireland for a while, I learned a lot of things are European, a lot of styles, <laughs> but us Americans, I think we're normally talking about, you know, French coloring or Italian coloring, which can be really soft. It's all about letting the artists do the majority of the talking with their skills. So in my mind, I've always chosen to be a backup vocalist. I don't ever want to try to like overstep on what an artist has already done so well. So I think that's kind of where I try to put my best efforts. So this episode is actually about the Scarlet Witch. <laughs> so I love her. Let's talk uh, about my favorite. Let's talk about her. So what is your history with the Scarlet Witch? You've colored her several times, right? Yes. I colored Michael Walsh on Tom King's uh, 
story with Wanda, which is a very good and sad story. Amazing. Love her there. And of course, Vanessa Del Rey, my collaborator on Redlands. Total, absolute, fierce legend. And yeah, just Scarlet Witch is just this amazing beast. I wish I could color her more, to be honest. Maybe someday Marvel will let me pitch a writing and coloring of her because I just think she's a... I don't know. She's just dark. She's everything. I want more Marvel characters to be like, to be honest. It's very spoopy. <laughs> How has her look kind of evolved over time color wise, whether through your own mm. work or through your work versus what you've seen other people do, which you've already talked about a little bit, but let's put it in this context. Well, to be honest, again, I feel like I've seen her uh, colored by so many interesting people. I actually bought this really amazing commission, or not commission, I guess it was a cover maybe, by David LaFuente, and it's like incredible of Scarlet Witch, the um, Olsen version of her in that costume, and it's just so amazing, and because she's got all this like bright energy always coming off of her and everything, I think there's like a lot of really interesting you know, versions of her where she's really lit up, really shiny, really just unbelievably um, goddess tier. But I personally would prefer to see Scarlet Witch more like street level, uh, really dark, really Dave Stewart, Lee Lowridge, red. The way I kind of probably addressed her in um, Vanessa's is instead of like her being, not that again, I have nothing wrong with rendering, rendering's great, but I want to see Scarlet Witch's reds just like iconic. I just want to see her like taking up those pages the way that the David Aha covers were. I want that. That's what I want. Blood red everywhere. And, and really do you dark. have a particular <laughs> favorite shade of red for the Scarlet Ooh, Witch? Ooh, I like that question, Ellie. That should have been at the top of the game for Scarlet Witch. Favorite red? Ooh, Scarlet, obviously. Just Scarlet. Just Scarlet. Edgar Allan Poe red. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. You know what I, I mean. You're a literature mean. lady. You know what I'm on about. One of the things that kind of comes along with coloring Wanda is, you know, that there's there's always magic involved. And mm -hmm. um, I'm going to take this once again back to the Doctor Strange book that we did together that, you know, coloring magic is its own whole separate thing. So kind of what's your approach to that? Because you've had to color magic for various different characters and various different books over the years. Do you find that you take a different approach with different characters? Color holds and glows, Ellie. Color holds and glows. That's that's what I do. But yeah, I guess for instance, like with different characters, obviously, yeah, you want to make everybody have their own signature look. I really like a signature look as like a Star Wars nerd. I think it's important that everybody have their own color profile, and that's very fun. And uh, yeah, just making sure they read and that they look really like just fun. So what's the biggest change that you've kind of noticed in Scarlet Witch over time or that you have contributed to Scarlet Witch over Ooh. time? I don't know if I've contributed very much, but I would like to think that me and Vanessa as a team did a really cool issue that I don't know if people had seen before in the sense that it was really dark and really visceral and just really like, but that's just Vanessa. Vanessa's so good at just bringing a really sinister edge to her work. You know, just like Punisher, I think about Punisher Max. I want a Scarlet Witch Max series, and I want to see her not just be a dolled up Hollywood version of what I think raw femininity is. I want to see her <laughs> like do some really crazy stuff on a Max series. Where's Nicola's phone number? Let's call him up. Let's yeah. get it going. We'll, we'll figure that out. Uh, and I, I agree with you because there's a lot of inherent darkness in that character right. and, and and a lot of exploring mental health to do with that character, oh, gosh, yes. uh, which comics have certainly touched on in the past. Talking about the history of comics, do you have a favorite old school Scarlet Witch, either Ooh. look or story? I don't know. I think I like the classic outfit, the fishnets, pink fishnets and boots. It's like mm -hmm. pink tights. I think sometimes it's fishnets, sometimes it's not. But I, pink and red are my favorite colors. So uh, she's basically my favorite, Ellie. This is this has just been a platform for me that I hope Marvel editors hear to just know how deep I want to be on a Wanda book. Please just let me love her. Let me let me color her and write her, please. Yeah. So let's talk about that, because you've mentioned that you are also a writer, and that is something I wanted to talk about. I was just oh, trying to decide you. where in the order of the questions it was going to go. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, we've talked about Wanda's evolution. Let's talk about yours. Um, so you've been writing a fair amount over the last few years. 
Only a bit. Yeah, I'd say I'm barely a writer, but I enjoy it. It's been good. I've had some really good opportunities with some really cool editors. Actually, former Marvel alumni Janine Schaefer, she like is amazing. And she was editing Buffy, which I wrote. And that was like a crazy good ride. And uh, now I'm working with DC, actually, I'm writing some young Diana. And that's been very fun. But really, I want to like write really upsetting, <laughs> dark, emotional just not for young adult readers. Jordi Belair, Scarlet Witch, let me have her hurt people. That she doesn't mean to. It's just on accident. She'll feel bad about it, I promise. She'll definitely cry about it later. No, Spoiler. That, that, that sounds like a plan. Um, yeah. And do you use your colorist brain at all when you're writing? Oh, gosh, yes. When I was writing Redlands uh, with me and Vanessa, a lot of the times it was so great because, again, Vanessa being from Florida, it was incredible that I could describe things to her that I think only like Floridian weirdos will understand or people who grew up and spent a lot of time there about just kind of like what it looks like, what it feels like, what it smells like. And of course, she totally nails it. And it was so great just knowing that what I was going to write, she was going to nail and then I would just get to lay that color on. And I was already thinking about it while I was writing it. It's kind of rare. And nowadays when I'm asked if like Janine was very kind and she asked if I wanted to color any of Buffy at the time. And I said, no, I'm good. Because a lot of it too, it starts writing still for me right now feels really fun. It doesn't feel like a job. And the moment I color it, it feels like a job. <laughs> so sometimes I'm very happy to take a back seat on that. Understand that entirely. Yes. <laughs> like as, as, <laughs> as someone who has a whole hat collection in terms of things that I do, it's always like what, figuring out that line of when is it going to feel like work versus the thing that feels like fun versus the context that you're doing a particular talent in uh so no I very relatable content (laughs) thank you well speaking of how much work there is to go around I hear you have a bunch of it on your desk so I don't want to keep too long (laughs) but this has been so much fun you and I could probably talk for another hour I really could Um, thank you Ellie but you'll just have to come back Aww. to Women of Marvel again in the future uh, sure. to talk to us about your Scarlet Witch Max series oh my that gosh. I have no authority to approve. Well, thank we'll you. See. I appreciate you talking to me. I'm sorry if my answers were long-winded, but I care a lot, unfortunately. Uh, your answers were <laughs> wonderful. Please come thank back to you. Women of Marvel anytime. Anytime. Thank anytime. you. Anytime. So one of the things I love about comics is that it's like the ultimate team sport, right? And when you have such an incredibly talented artist like a Jordi Belair come in and put so much like thought and love and an idea and like, I don't know, like intention into a character, it really screams off the pages. And she's such an amazing human being. Uh, Actually, years ago, lifetime ago, she was one of the first artists that we pitched to have on the show. And I'm so happy that she is finally on the Woman of Marvel podcast, a epic woman. Uh, and you can check out more of her beautiful work at jordybelair.com. All right, Ellie. I got to say, one of the best things about today and hearing these amazing interviews is your passion and how much you love the character and the subject matter. So, like, thank you for, like, bringing yourself and also, like, sharing these conversations with us. You are so welcome. I will talk about witches anytime. <laughs> and I I really love talking about Wanda in particular because she is so powerful that I I love all of the interesting ways that we find to continue to give her challenges and have her grow and evolve through the trials that she's faced, which in reality, is a kind of witchcraft unto itself, that personal evolution. Ellie, but like there isn't some more Scarlet Witch like coming. Like, talk to us about how folks can read more about Scarlet Witch, particularly digitally. Oh, yes. You know, I'm also always happy to talk to you about Infinity Comics, and we have one coming for Wanda very, very soon, in which you can learn all about the Scarlet Witch's origin story. You can find Infinity Comics on Marvel Unlimited, and we have one coming out soon called Who is Scarlet Witch? Speaking of learning all about someone in a quick and easy format we have another fantastic woman stopping by to give us our staff spotlight 
My name is Stephanie Moran, and I am the design manager on the creative services team for the Marvel Design Vault, which is our own print-on-demand store on Amazon here at Marvel. So being the design manager for the Design Vault means that I get to oversee and create art that would get placed on products like tees, phone cases, pillows that you can find on Amazon. So one of my favorite products is probably our subscription box because we get to do some unique art from internal and outside artists that we get to place on it. And it's a surprise every month for our customers. So that's pretty neat. So I was actually hired about three years ago for this specific program. So it's been really cool working on and seeing it grow from like the one t-shirt, the very first t-shirt that was uploaded to what it is now, the phone cases, the pillows, the totes, and now the subscription box. The first t-shirt was actually an X-Men design because I'm an X-Men fan. And so also the first shirt I bought. <laughs> I grew up knowing Spidey and all these other because of the shows, but it wasn't until X-Men Evolution, which a lot of people give me a hard time for, that I actually fell in love with X-Men, which led me to then want to read the comics and just want to learn more about the X-Men. And through that, I ended up falling in love with essentially Rogue and Jean Grey. Uh, just like powerful women and seeing their struggle and like with most X-Men stories, right? Just really relatable and kind of seeing like, okay, even though they go through these problems, how they positively come out of it, how they grow from it. And it was kind of like growing up also a learning lesson, like, okay, wait, if they can get through all of this, I think I can get through my hurdles too. <laughs> so it was pretty inspiring. So being a woman at Marvel has been really empowering. Having a really supportive team to work with has been super great, but also being able to have a say. Just because I'm a girl doesn't mean you should throw flowers and like, yes, I like flowers and fluffy things too and sparkles, but like sometimes I just want a really cool product and being able to have that say and being heard is really, really an amazing opportunity. That was amazing. I need to go check out the Design Vault right now. Totally. I am on the same boat. I love it, learning about all the amazing women that work at Marvel. Women of Marvel is produced by Isabel Robertson, Cara McGurk-Allison, Ellie Pyle, Judy Stevens, and Angelique Rocher. Our senior manager of audio development is Brad Barton. Our production manager is Larissa Rosen, and our executive producer is Jill Duboff. Listen weekly on SiriusXM and on Marvel Podcasts Unlimited on Apple Podcasts. And until next time, we'll be back next week for more Women of Marvel. This is Marvel, your universe. <laughs>